This is DW News, live from Berlin. Putin blasts the West over the Ukraine crisis. The Russian leader accuses the U.S. and its allies of trying to draw Moscow into war. We ask about the plight of those caught in the crosshairs as the threat of an invasion looms large. Also coming up, Israel eases the rules on vaccine passes, but new COVID-19 cases are still running at record levels, and many doctors and nurses are in quarantine. And athletes are preparing to go for gold at the Winter Olympics in Beijing. But political issues and the ongoing pandemic are causing headaches for organizers. I'm Leila Hark, thank you so much for joining us. Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a blistering verbal attack on the West as the crisis over Ukraine shows no signs of easing. In his first public remarks this year on the standoff, Putin has accused the U.S. and its allies of ignoring Moscow's concerns over security in the region. And he says the West is trying to draw Russia into war. For weeks, he has left the talking to others, but now President Vladimir Putin has accused the United States of trying to drag Russia into conflict. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into armed conflict. Across the border in Kiev, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson offered a show of support to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Johnson warned that war would be a lose-lose outcome. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And... Uh, it, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. Ukraine is not completely relying on diplomacy to protect them. President Zelensky announced a huge addition to his nation's army. We will create a new political cooperation format in Europe between Ukraine, Great Britain and Poland. Within the next three years, we will increase the number of the Ukrainian armed forces by 100,000 professional soldiers. In a video released just hours before Boris Johnson's visit, soldiers tested rocket artillery systems just north of the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia invaded and annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Both sides are preparing for war, while the diplomats try to make peace. Let's get you to latest now. DW correspondent Nick Conley is in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Uh, first of all, Nick, how were President Putin's remarks received in Ukraine? 
I think with little surprise, this is what Ukrainians say they've been hearing for the past eight years since that conflict broke out uh, in eastern Ukraine, since Russia annexed Crimea. They say the only thing that's changed is that the West is now paying attention because of those tanks on Ukraine's borders. Basically, what we heard from Vladimir Putin was the main message was about Ukraine being a vassal, a pawn, basically a plaything in the hands of the West and not a country with its own agency. And we've seen the Kremlin uh, refusing to talk direct to Kiev in recent weeks and months, preferring to talk direct to the administration in Washington, D.C., not even talking to the EU uh, or bigger European states. So it's little surprise here, and it doesn't really feel like a big change because people here have been very nervous and making preparations basically since December. So this is more of the same from Vladimir Putin. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about the people caught in the crosshairs. But first, Ukrainian President Zelensky has uh, announced that he is going to increase uh, Ukrainian troop numbers. We talked about that also. Is Ukraine fortifying its borders? What is the situation in the borderlands? Well, that's... That plan to increase the size of the army, that will take some years to carry out. That is a longer-term plan that doesn't change much in terms of the balance of power for now, which is very much not in Ukraine's favor. Russia has many more troops, has approximately about half as many troops as Ukraine has in total massed on Ukraine's border um, right now, by some estimates. Um, and. Uh, in terms of Navy, in terms of air strength, Ukraine way behind there and in no real uh, position to prevent Russia coming in. And without a NATO guarantee, the Ukrainians are acutely aware of their vulnerability. As for people living close to the front lines, well, it depends where you go. In Donbass, where that conflict with Russian-backed separatists has been rumbling on for years, people are very aware of the risks. They see shelling, they see uh, soldiers dying, but also civilians um, falling victim to this conflict. In other places slightly further away, it all feels a bit unreal and a bit um, difficult to really equate with their daily lives. But given that Russian troop buildup is all along Ukraine's northern border and now also in Russia's ally Belarus, some of those Russian troops are now about 100, 120 kilometers away from where I am now here in Kiev. This is all very close and it is present for Ukrainians who previously might have thought that mm. the conflict with Russia is hundreds of kilometers away. Now it is everywhere and it is an acute threat. Let's talk a little bit more about that. I, I, wanna, I want us to get a sense and our viewers to get a sense of, of what people are feeling at the moment. You know, you have conversations with people there. What is the overall emotion? You know, what impact are these tensions having on their day-to-day -day lives? Well, it's a really strange sense. So for most of this uh, of this escalation in recent weeks, you really heard from Ukrainian friends and contacts that they couldn't really see why the West was getting so excited. They said, as I mentioned, that this conflict with Russia had been going on for years and they didn't see a particular difference. There was a dummy run, as it were, in spring 2021 when Russia brought troops to the borders and that fizzled out with any, without any conflict happening in the end. But now you really notice the same people who were downplaying this, who weren't taking this so seriously, then will by the by tell you that they are um, withdrawing money from banks, keeping small notes in foreign currencies ready, delaying buying apartments or taking on debts because they just don't know what what the future will hold and if this is a country that they can build a future in and whatever happens in this now even if this current escalation is um, doesn't go any further and is um, ended this is the long-term takeaway for Ukrainians that this instability on their borders really undermines investments in Ukraine foreigners coming here but also Ukrainians own belief in the future of their country. DW's Nick Conley reporting from Kiev Ukraine. Nick thank you for your coverage. 
Let's get you up to speed with the other stories making world news right now. The European Commission has given the green light for some nuclear energy and natural gas investments to be labeled as sustainable. Officials say private investment can contribute to climate goals. But critics warn the legislation jeopardizes the target of achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. Austria says it is considering a legal challenge to the ruling. In Australia, two large bushfires have prompted evacuations on the outskirts of Perth. An emergency warning has been issued with blistering temperatures and high winds threatening to intensify the blazes in the coming days. The fires have burned through some 100 hectares of land. At least 26 people have been killed in the Democratic Republic of Congo after a high-voltage power cable snapped and fell. The incident happened on the outskirts of the capital, Kinshasa. Authorities say the cable hit homes and a market, killing several people instantly. Israelis may soon be able to stow away their vaccine passes for good. Israel was one of the first countries to introduce the pass. But officials have decided that from Sunday, it will only be needed in high-risk situations such as hospitals and care homes, and for large parties. The government is relaxing the rules despite being in the middle of a wave of COVID infections. Since the early morning, Yael Liron has been on duty on a COVID ward. An elderly patient needs oxygen and some comforting words. The COVID wards at this hospital in Tel Aviv are extremely busy. There are a lot of cases. We have new intakes every day. When one is released, another is submitted at night. Numbers are on the rise. We always experience a delay. Even when the general infection rate seems lower, we at the hospital are still dealing with the higher numbers from the two weeks previously. Though overall, Omicron infection rates show signs of slowing down, the number of patients in hospital remains high. Israel was one of the first countries in the world to roll out a rapid vaccination program. Over 65% of the population have been vaccinated twice, but only 48% have had a third booster shot so far. In January, those in the most vulnerable categories were offered a fourth. During this wave, most of our patients have been elderly. It reminds us of the flu. The complications are comparable. People are dying now the way they would die from the flu. Also, fewer people are dying of Omicron. Most patients on this ward are vaccinated elderly people with underlying health conditions. Working on the ward is exhausting for everyone. Adding to this, hospitals, like other institutions, are struggling with staff shortages. Due to the highly contagious Omicron variant, high numbers of doctors and nurses are in quarantine. It's difficult. It's the fifth time we've been at full capacity here in Israel, but we're dealing with it. That's just how it is, as they say, and it's our job to look after patients. But it's definitely hard, and there's a lot of burnout among the staff. We have to work very hard, but we're happy to do what's necessary. But yes, it's exhausting, and it doesn't look like it's going to end soon. 
Although, I am personally cautiously optimistic. For now, everybody here must keep going, doing the best they can for the ongoing influx of patients and hoping that the peak of the current wave will soon subside. That report by Tanya Kramer. We can take you now to Tel Aviv and speak to Nadav Davidovich, a epidemiologist from the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Uh, Professor, welcome to DW News. Uh, I understand that you sit on the panel that advises the Israeli government, and you've been critical in the past of some of their uh, approaches. With cases still high in your country, is this the right decision? The Green Pass actually was introduced uh, in order to have uh, safe epidemiological spaces. Uh, it was not introduced in order to enforce vaccinations. Vaccinations are extremely important. They saved in Israel, according to our estimates, about 20,000 deaths. Um, but currently, with the Omicron and uh, with the fact that uh, people vaccinated the uh, um, they are saved probably from uh, hospitalizations and uh, death, but much less so uh, in being infected. So we need to adapt uh, the Green Pass. Uh, we don't want to abolish it uh, altogether. We want to keep it uh, also for the future if needed. And uh, currently probably this is best to have it either as a voluntary measure or when uh, you have high risk situations such as hospitals, elderly care homes, or uh, other uh, high-risk uh, activities. Um, vaccinations are very, very important. Uh, we are now in a really unprecedented situation and we need to adapt uh, the current measures uh, to the epidemiology. Mm. Uh, we need to vaccinate. We need mm. to still use the mask, of course. And um, I mm. think that uh, by the fact that we are adapting the Green Pass, it's very important also from uh, the trust of the public. Right. Now, Doctor, Israel has been uh, slowly rolling back curbs. Is there widespread support for that? Um, I think that uh, the current government, uh, you know, was uh, trying to balance uh, the measures in terms of uh, keeping as much as you can uh, the number of cases. But remembering the public health is also about uh, social support and economy. Uh, I think that uh, currently we could do much better in terms of uh, opening schools. I think it was an important um, factor, but um, there was lots of confusion and tension between the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Education. And there were also criticism about uh, the economic support because so many people are in isolation. We're learning to live with the COVID. If you compare Israel uh, situation and other countries, you know, to what happened about a year ago, things are very different. We have adoption of testing and many other things. We need to learn to live with the virus because uh, COVID is going to stay with us. We're learning that uh, the FDA is going to hear uh, Pfizer about having vaccines below the age of five. And I think this will be another important measure because uh, vaccination are going to enter, I think, uh, finally into the regular schedule of uh, children. And uh, we are going to deal uh, with it and strengthening the healthcare system as much mm. as needed. They suffered a lot during the last two years. Mm. Epidemiologist uh, Nadav Davidovich in Tel Aviv. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time to answer our questions. Thank you. Lots of health.
now here in Germany. Debate is raging over whether a former far-right politician can go back to his old job as a judge. Jens Meyer was a member of parliament for the far-right AFD party. He now wants to preside over courts after failing to win re-election. He used to be a member of parliament for the far-right AFD party. And recently he was categorized as extremist by the domestic intelligence agency. Jens Maia is known for his far-right and unconstitutional statements, also while he was in Parliament. Back in 2017, he was reprimanded for trivializing the Holocaust. This whole propaganda and re-education directed against us, which is supposed to persuade us that Auschwitz was factually the consequence of German history, I hereby declare this cult of guilt to be over, to be finally over. In September last year, Maya was not elected for a second term in Parliament. Now, he wants to go back to his previous job as a judge in the German state of Saxony. According to the law, he's allowed to do that. But many believe the justice minister can stop him from doing so. His behavior during his time as a member of parliament gives reason to at least initiate disciplinary proceedings and to examine whether one can also use his statements to accuse him of having violated his official duties. This could possibly even lead to his dismissal as a judge. The Justice Ministry in Saxony doesn't think it can pursue this route. But there's another possibility, a so-called judge impeachment. If judges violate the German constitution, they can be removed from office after a vote by a two-thirds majority in the state parliament and a decision by the federal constitutional court. But the hurdles are high, and the clock is ticking for those who want to stop Maya. Let's get you more on this. Uh, I will turn now to DW Chief Political Correspondent Melinda Crane, who is closely uh, following this story. Uh, Melinda, uh, put this in perspective to us. What are the chances that Mr. Meyer will be able to return to his job as court judge? Well, as we heard in the report, there are instruments that uh, might make it possible to stop him from doing so. But the threshold is quite high, both legally and politically. As, as we heard there, if it can be shown that he has violated the Constitution with some of his statements and opinions, uh, then that would be the legal basis. And in the report, you did hear him, for example, in a way, indirectly challenging the Holocaust, which certainly uh, does look to be in violation of the German constitution's uh, core prohibition uh, against violating human dignity. But he caged his words there. So, so even that as a legal threshold is challenging. And then there's the political uh, threshold that at least two-thirds of the members of Saxony's state parliament would have to agree that this measure be implemented, and it then would have to go to Germany's highest constitutional court, where two-thirds of the judges would have to say, yes, this is grounds to prevent him from assuming his old post. So difficult indeed, precisely because Germany is a, a democracy where rule of law matters, and yet that's exactly what he is trying to subvert uh, with many of his statements and actions, rule of law.
uh, very thorny issue that you outline uh, there, Melinda. And I understand that there have been other reports of uh, right-wing extremists who work as lawyers and civil servants. Um, put this in perspective for us. How endemic is this? How pervasive is this issue? It's an absolutely grave uh, problem, uh, regardless of the numbers, uh, because the fact is uh, that whether serving in the administration or sitting in parliament, as Mr. Meyer did, these members of the AFD have a platform for expressing views that do call rule of law into question and, and work to subvert democracy. They use democratic institutions for that purpose. Last week, the AFD's somewhat more moderate co-leader Jörg Moiten announced that he was quitting his post and leaving the party because it is becoming increasingly radical. Its heart beats ever more to the right, he said, and it pounds ever louder. So the party has been in disarray for some time, and in the last election it didn't do well in the west of Germany, but it had resounding success in many parts of the east, which is where Mr. Meyer would be working if he's allowed to return to his post. The AFD's radicalization risks widening the divisions between eastern and western Germany and stoking polarization in this country. DW Chief Political Correspondent, correspondent rather, Melinda Crane. Melinda, thank you so much for laying it all out for us. And we're going to go to our next top story. Beijing will become the first city to host both the Summer and Winter Olympics when this year's Games officially begin on Friday. Almost 3,000 athletes will be competing for glory. But with health concerns and political tensions dominating headlines in the buildup, sport is at risk of becoming a subplot at Beijing 2022. Billions have been invested into making Beijing 2022 an extravagant festival of competition, but the build-up has been about so much more than sport. Politics, for instance. Some nations, including the US and the UK, have declared a diplomatic boycott over human rights issues and will send competitors, but no ministers or officials. Meanwhile, organisers have threatened athletes with punishment for any behaviour or expression that they deem in breach of Chinese law and will expect the IOC to rigorously enforce its own rules limiting protests. In the Olympic Charter, there are very strict rules. So for the medal ceremonies and during the competitions, political protests are not permitted. On other occasions, like at press conferences or during interviews or on personal platforms, the athletes are free to express their opinions. But the athletes must be responsible for what they say. Due to COVID, athletes and journalists will be kept in secure bubbles, while no spectator tickets will be sold to the public. Organisers say health and safety are paramount. Of course, COVID countermeasures are still on top of our agenda. We have been making effective measures and everything is under control. Without a safe games, there would be no games. So we will make sure that the health and safety of all participants is our top priority. A total of 32 new cases were reported by Olympic authorities on Wednesday alone. As expected, the pandemic is proving to be one of several headaches for the organisers of Beijing 2022.
All right. Uh, two days away from the Beijing Winter Olympics. And so happy to have here with me Tom Gunoy from DW Sports. Tom, um, just how much disruption do we expect as a result of the ongoing pandemic? Uh, plenty, I think, is probably in a word about the answer to that question. Now, of course, there has already been a fair bit of disruption. As we heard there in the report, 32 cases registered just today in Beijing. Obviously, the athletes are inside the closed-loop COVID bubble, um, and they're subject to daily testing. The worst-case scenario, of course, for any athlete is to test positive, and then it's games over. They won't be allowed to compete, of course. Um, for reporters and for other participants, for officials, they're also in bubbles in Beijing at the moment, subject to a lot of testing as well. And also for spectators, the disruption has basically already happened. Now, it was at the end of last year when the decision was announced that Beijing organisers wouldn't be selling any, t uh, any tickets to international spectators. They then, earlier on this year, in January announced that they wouldn't even sell a public, you know, a stage a public sale of tickets to domestic spectators. There will be a few who are specially invited along. It's slightly unclear exactly to whom those tickets will be going. Um, but yeah, obviously COVID casting a long shadow over the games. And another uh, thing that's also casting a long shadow, of course, a diplomatic uh, boycotts by the likes of the United States and the United Kingdom. How has that uh, been received by Beijing? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, of course, it's not been taken uh, with, it's not been received with glee. Now, it obviously doesn't go as far as a full boycott of the games. That was discussed in some countries, but um, the UK and the US, also Australia, have elected to stage a diplomatic boycott. That just means that they won't be sending any government officials or any diplomatic representatives. Now, China accused the USA of grandstanding political posturing and of undermining the games when the diplomatic boycott was announced. Um, and it's one of several political issues that are thorns in China's side during these games. Another example, of course, is the participation of Taiwan. Now, Taiwan is a territory that's claimed as part of China by the People's Republic. They compete at the games under the banner of Chinese Taipei. And the delegation from Chinese Taipei had said that they wouldn't attend the opening or closing ceremonies. Now, they've now been told by the IOC that their participation is required. But, you know, for these kind of things to be making the headlines, it obviously distracts from the games. And, of course, it's um, inconvenient for China. It's not what they hope people would really be talking about. And in a few words, Tom, what can fans expect from Beijing 2022? Uh, in sporting terms, obviously plenty of highlights. Now, one of the things that a lot of people are looking forward to is the bobsled, uh, because we will see the return of a Jamaican bobsledding team to that competition after 24 years of absence from the Games. We've also heard great things about that track. It's brand new, supposed to be very interesting, very long, lots of interesting corners and things. So that's something to look out for. That starts Thursday next week. Um, curling, of course, an iconic sport of the Winter Games. That's actually begun today, the first preliminary rounds. So, yeah, in sporting terms, also plenty of highlights, obviously, on offer. We can't wait. Tom Gunoy, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for watching. Uh, stick with us up next. It's DW News Asia. DW speaks with Myanmar's government in exile one year after the army takeover. Is the way forward negotiation or armed conflict? That story and a whole lot more coming up in just a moment in DW News Asia with Paresh Banerjee. I'm Leila Harak in Berlin. On behalf of all of us here, thank you so much for spending this part of your day with us.
fashion. A billion dollar business for the few. Gross exploitation for the many. And pollution for everyone. The Chinese fashion giant Shein eclipses anything like it before. Ever faster and ever cheaper, but it will cost the world so much more than money. Made in Germany. In 60 minutes on DW. Every day counts for us and for our planet. Global Ideas is on its way to bring you more conservation. How do we make cities greener? How can we protect habitats? What to do with all our waste? We can make a difference by choosing smart new solutions over staying set in our ways. Global Ideas, the environmental series in Global 3000, on DW and online. One of mankind's oldest ambitions could be within reach. What if it really is possible to reverse aging? Researchers and scientists all over the world are in a race against time. They are peers and rivals with one daring goal to outsmart nature. More Life starts February 16th on DW.